Totally Football Show. Have you had enough, Nazi? Or do you want some more? Well said, people's poet. Today, Tony looks back on that night in Sofia and England's exemplary response to racism so bad, even Boris Johnson said it was out of order. Then, after a quick roundup of the other international news, we're off to the Premier League, where there's big drama in store. Will Man United finish the weekend in the bottom three? Will Crystal Palace be above Man City? All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Uh, thanks for joining us. Today's Totally Features, back from Ankle Neck, uh, Jack Lang. How are you feeling, Jack? I'm feeling fine, still limping a touch, but getting there. Pooch-loving Duncan Alexander joins us. <laughs> Hi. As stars Daniel Story. Good morning. Ahead of what's going to be a big weekend, I understand, Daniel, in Sheffield. Yes, not wanting to over-egg the pudding. I'm just having a boys' weekend in Sheffield. Brilliant. Back here on Monday morning for Totally, and then back up to Sheffield for Sheffield United Arsenal. Wow, that's amazing. What kind of thing will your boys' weekend in Sheffield consist of? Just sitting and watching sport in the pub, I think. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. All right, well, uh, loads for us to talk about uh, today. Uh, Lots of international action. Of course, stat of the weekend, this from ESPN. Uh, Ronaldo reaching 700 goals the other day against Ukraine. Some perspective, if your football career started at 18 and you scored 30 goals a season for 22 years, you would still retire with fewer goals than Ronaldo's got. I've seen that stat quite a lot of... Places. It kind of gets it gets trotted out quite a lot, yeah. I oh, mean, does it? Okay. Well, no, it's a, it's a it is a good contextual bit of information. Yeah. I mean, he is seven hundred goals. As a lot of people have pointed out, most players won't make seven hundred appearances in their career. So to get seven hundred goals is pretty good. He's still got fewer Premier League hat tricks than Kevin Nolan, though. So that could change. I right. think that's the dream now is to come back just for one last bang at the Premier one League. Big chicken celebration. Yeah. <laughs> is he is he just one behind? Yeah. Okay. Well, he's got one. Kevin Nolan's got two. So there you go, there you go, Duncan. In a similar vein, your stat this week about Alexis Sanchez. Mm. Uh, Duncan says if you'd saved one pound every single day since Ethelstan was crowned King of England in 925, you'd have enough to have paid Alexis Sanchez's Man United wages for one week. One week, Jack. I had a lot of people. Shouldn't you save that for Poppy Week though? That really belongs there. Yeah, possibly. But I had a lot of um, fairly dull people get replying to me about compound interest and all that. I mean, I, to be honest, they're the dull ones. A right? message to them: <laughs> I don't care. All right. Well, Alexis Sanchez uh, currently out, of course, uh, two to three months with dislocated tendons in his last left ankle. Poor chap. After Chile's uh, nil-nil draw with Colombia, it's been a busy week for international action. England's trip to Bulgaria was a very major story, but not the only one. So let's get a quick roundup on some of the news from those Euro 2020 qualifiers. Things becoming a little bit clearer around the qualifying groups. Ukraine and Spain are now finally on the plane. Spain booking their place with a 1-1 draw with Sweden, in which David De Gea made a stunning save to keep Spain in it, then went out of it, hobbling off injured. Ukraine, meanwhile, with a 2-1 win over Portugal and some very understated celebrations from Alexander Zinchenko, who invaded one post-match interview after another. Elsewhere, France and Turkey drew 1-1, so neither qualifies yet, but both remain on track. Ireland's chances look a lot less rosy after their 2-0 loss in Switzerland, and Finland on the verge of their first ever major tournament, thanks to a 3-0 win over Armenia, featuring a brace from Teimo Puki. Amidst all of that, England went to Sofia, bounced back from their Czech defeat and answered the racist chance of the crowd to record a 6-0 victory, Bulgaria's heaviest ever home defeat. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Daniel, was this the worst crowd of kind of racist abuse that you can recall? I think it was the most, the combination of the most overt and obvious racism, a.k.a. monkey chants targeted at, at black players, combined with the kind of most notable uh, organised reaction to it, i.e. UEFA's protocols being enacted and England considering walking off the pitch but then deciding as a team, which I think was the right way forward, mm. that they wanted to carry on playing. It feels a bigger story than it's been before, although we should say that's that's possibly because it was involving the England team and 
our reaction is an England media reaction. But yes, it, it felt it felt notorious and felt notable, I think. Among the many uh, commendable reactions from the England team, Raheem Sterling's sympathy with ordinary Bulgarian fans mm-hmm. for uh, the problems that some of their number had, had caused. And that's something I, I think that probably England supporters can empathise with. Uh, however... Uh, a lot of suggestions that this was actually by no means an accident. It was almost like a targeted action by certain supporters against as much their own federation as England's players. Yeah, absolutely. Although it should be said that, that Bulgaria were already subject to, to punishments and had a kind of part stadium closure because of racism. So it's not the first time. I think I think there were three really positive reactions. One is the one you mentioned. Uh, the second is, was Bulgaria's captain... Popov going over to the supporters at, at half-time to sort of plead with them and say, look, this has no place, which is a very brave thing to do as an individual. And the third was Gareth Southgate talking after the game and saying, hang on a minute, let's remember that the reason that our players are used to reacting to this racism is because they've been hardened by what's happening in their own country. Um, we need to be a bit careful, I think, about the kind of what about of you're not allowed to criticise that because we have racism here. Mm. I think it's actually completely opposite. I think if you can do both, that makes your criticism stand out more and stand alone better. So he was saying, let's get our own house in order, let's criticise others, but let's also focus on, on English football and English society. Yeah, and you're not really going to make any progress until you recognise that Indeed. How, how widespread the issue is. Uh, Gareth Southgate also saying the players know they've made a statement and they want the focus to be on the football. And that's understandable, firstly, because it was such a, must have been such an unpleasant experience for them. And secondly, because the football was absolutely brilliant, especially compared to the previous performance against the Czechs. England looking like kind of Man city yes, the good Man City. Yeah, I thought it was a, a fine performance. They, they were a lot slicker in midfield. I think Harry Winks in this kind of game is just such an obvious pick because... I mean, let's be completely honest, Bulgaria were dire, has to be said at the outset. But in that kind of game, Winks's calm and quick use of the ball, you know, he doesn't dally on it. It's one touch pass. He helped England move from side to side, tugging Bulgaria's, you know, 10 men behind the ball slowly out of position. And uh, especially, I think, Ross Barkley's first goal, I thought, was was a really great example of a team slowly but surely dragging opposition out of the positions they want to be in really intelligent patient play and against a team that sits so deep it's not always easy to to find the way through but I thought England did it fantastically yeah and I think you can argue that Sterling and Harry Kane are both playing better for England at the moment than they are for their clubs and they actually look a really good partnership I mean Mm. Kane ended that game with a hat-trick of assists and his role for England now is to kind of drop a bit deeper and, and play with some really searching passes so you know, that augurs well for, for the summer next year. All right, Kane's now been directly involved in 15 goals in his last 10 games for England. Nine goals, six assists. Sterling, 13 goals in his Euro 2020 qualifying. Eight goals and five assists. Only Russia's Artem Juba has been involved in more. Any qualifiers on that beyond the fact that it was a, a Bulgaria team who started bad and seemed to get worse after the problems with their supporters? Yeah, they did, and, and they are towards the bottom of the group for a reason uh, and the problems that we encountered in, in the Czech Republic don't go away because of this result but Southgate's always talked about instant reactions to setbacks and that being, the, especially with a young team which it is, that response to setback being incredibly important so he'll be hugely buoyed by All what right. he saw Well a fantastic performance then from England in difficult circumstances up next we'll be hearing about what on earth happened to Ireland from former Group D high flyers to a team on the brink of missing out altogether. Ireland, top of Group D, but they had a horrendous international break. Only one point from two games against Georgia and Switzerland, which means that with the three sides now separated by just one point, the Republic must win their next match with Denmark next month in Dublin. Joining us on the line now is Dion Fanning from Joe IE's Ireland Unfiltered and The Football Spin. Hi, James. How's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. Listen, what happened over the weekend then? It's not so much... Well, what happened in Switzerland is one thing, but also the, 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 uh, the draw in Georgia, which has put Ireland into a bad position. There was a lot of rejoicing in Ireland uh, when Denmark dropped points in Tbilisi uh, during the last international round. And it seemed a little bit premature because... Ireland still had to go there. Um, 
And as it transpired, it turned out to be um, one of the worst games of international football anyone had ever seen until the next time Ireland played international football. Um, and that is, I think that is one of the problems with where Ireland are at the moment. Clearly, they're in, they, they need to beat Denmark now to qualify. There is also a, a sort of a frustration that in a, in a tournament which is kind of set up, like it is very hard not to qualify for the European Championships. Um, it seems to be, you know, you can, you can fall into this and Ireland will have another chance through a playoff all that looks like a tricky route if they don't qualify in November. But the sense that Ireland aren't going anywhere with their football, that they're still, uh, that the, you know, the young players that are, are coming through, that, you know, the, the few that they are, but that there is no sign of Ireland progressing in their football through the years of Trapattoni, through the years of Martin O'Neill, and now with Mick McCarthy. Um, I think that is something that has been overlooked because, this is a competition that gives you a lot of chances. And Ireland are in a position now where they have one more chance to qualify directly. And it's true. When Mick McCarthy says, that, you know, Ireland could need to beat Denmark at home, they are capable of doing that. But there is no evidence on any of the performances so far that they will do that. All right. Mick's calling it a cup final, and he says he's relishing it. Uh, re- remind me what happened last time Denmark came to Dublin with qualifying on the line. Uh Denmark won five one, so there is, there is history. History isn't on Ireland's side, and it's not just that. It's not just that game. It is, as I said, the performances in this group where Ireland have beaten Georgia. That's that's the that's the team. You know, and Gibraltar, like they are the teams they they managed to beat in the group. So there is nothing except the idea that anyone can win a football match uh, as as evidence for for you know getting hopeful. And I think that is the problem. Mick McCarthy keep saying this same thing. If you had offered me this position at the start of the campaign, I would have taken it. This has become the message that is pumped out uh, from the Ireland squad. And it sort of creates a sort of a weariness in people because you kind of look at it and say, well, what are we, why are we watching? Why are we watching this? Why are you trying to tell us that everything is okay when we can see through our own eyes that this isn't good, that, there are players, you know, Aaron Connolly came in against Switzerland and did okay for a while. It wasn't great. But again, that was on the back of not starting against Georgia when, you know, he, he clearly should have done. Like, mm-hmm. there's the Mick McCarthy template seems all played out. Like, it, it's loyal, it, it's overarching loyalty. It's uh, talking about, you know, football as it was. There's no, you know, in, in a press conference in Geneva, he, he asked one of the journalists if they'd ever play professional football, that kind of stuff that, you know, I think all are all signifiers of, of, of an old way of doing things. And Ireland, as much as anything, is looking for some sign that there's something to be excited about, as much as qualification, that there is something to be excited about. And it hasn't helped Mick McCarthy that the manager, who many people, including myself, thought should get the job, Stephen Kenny, who did a very good job as manager of Dundalk in the League of Ireland and plays a, a style of football that is progressive and is exciting, and um, that he is instead was given the under-21 job until he takes over after the Euros. And the under-21s are everything everybody wants the senior team to be. They're exciting. They play football like you haven't seen Irish teams play football in a long time. And that isn't helping the impression of McCarthy who is a lovely man and everyone feels sorry for him. I've always introduced this qualifier for some reason. But anyway, he's a lovely man and everyone feels sorry for him for what happened in Saipan and blah, 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 blah. But he doesn't seem like he's the person to do the, do the job that people want done. Well, a must-win game for Ireland when the Danes visit. And if the Swiss, the other team in that triumvirate at the top of that group get four points against Georgia and Gibraltar their remaining games then Ireland will need to beat Denmark by two goals just to back up Dion's point about excitement um, you look through the, the tables and qualifiers you've got England 26 goals top of their group you've got Netherlands and Germany 19 and 20 you've got uh, Belgium with 30 goals Italy with 25 Ireland have got seven goals wow oh no sorry <laughs> six goals six Six goals in seven games. That's it's not. It's getting worse all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, we're not laughing at Ireland, obviously. No. 
Uh, one other little international point for now is the fact that England's uh, women's team, the Lionesses, have announced that they have sold out Wembley for November's home match with Germany. 90,000, which, if everyone turns up, will set a new world record for a women's football game. The previous high, I think, is just over 80,000. Also in, in London from the 2012 Olympics, that was USA-Japan. England's previous record for a home game was about half that, 45,000, uh, also against Germany. Four. Should be mm. quite an atmosphere. All right, international football, tick. Up next, Premier League. Now, class, repeat after me. This is our year. This is our... Oh, I can't do it. We're a shade of Fergus teams. Hey, hey, you'll get there, mate. Take you from a Liverpool fan. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's just, you know, a long tunnel. There's plenty Man United fans could learn about misery from their Liverpool counterpart. But don't expect any sympathy this weekend. To make up for it, Paddy Power are offering money back as a free bet on all markets if Liverpool beat United. Paddy Power, home of the money back special. Max refund £10 as a free bet. Does not apply to shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Premier League, everybody. So, where were we? Well, Liverpool are top of the table with an eight-point lead over Manchester City. In third place are Arsenal, a point ahead of Leicester, Chelsea and Crystal Palace. Spurs and Man United are floundering in ninth and twelfth place, respectively. United, indeed, are just two points above the bottom three, which currently comprises Everton, who've lost their last four, Norwich, who've lost their last three, and Watford, who've yet to win a game. Wow. Well, this weekend, Liverpool on that incredible 17-game winning streak, will be looking to tie the Premier League record four consecutive victories when they visit Old Trafford. That's Sunday at Duncan 4.30. Yeah, tune in a bit earlier for that for what I'm sure will be a very understated build-up. Right, the possibly the most interesting bit of the afternoon, given the way Man United well, football games have been is, of late. that is the case, yeah. I mean, if you ever watch Premier League years, they often reuse some of the kind of montages that they make for these games, and they are incredibly dramatic and then as you say the game this game in particular tends to then be pretty prosaic and end nil nil I think we, oh. have, we do also have the Mourinho Sunes Keane combination mm. in the Sky Sports studio so that will Ooh. be quiet yeah <laughs> that at least will, will Liverpool rest players for the game with Genk do you think coming up next week uh, no, I don't think they will. There is a, it is a little bit of a test of Jürgen Klopp. He, he kind, in these games before, he's kind of gone a little bit safety first. There's no excuses now not, not to just fly at Manchester United, to treat them like a, they, was play, they were playing a Crystal Palace or they were playing a Bournemouth with no disrespect to either. But yeah, they are. it's complete disrespect to both. But um, yeah, they have to fly at them because if United concede early, the mood will turn at Old Trafford and right. they can win two or three. Yeah, I mean, often it's a bit of a cliche that the first 15 minutes of a game are important. I really think this one, if Liverpool take the lead early in this match, it could be horrible for Manchester United. But if, conversely, a bit like last season when it was 0-0, if nothing much happened, although I remember a lot of players going off injured in, that, in the game last season, um, then you could see United hang on. They technically, theoretically, on XG, United have got the best defence in the Premier League this season. So their one thing that they can do is defend. And they probably will have to do quite a lot of that against uh, Liverpool. And they're going to have um, Romero in goal, who has kept six clean sheets in his seven Premier League appearances. Well, that's interesting. Uh, De Gea in doubt because of the injury picked up for Spain against Sweden, while at the same time, Alisson could be back between the sticks for Liverpool. Rulang asks, has there ever been a bigger chasm between Liverpool and Man United? How far back would you have to go? Jack, in, in numbers terms, it's 15 points. Liverpool as well have scored more than twice as many goals as, as United. It's also just the feeling of it, I think. Um, obviously, with these games, the, the Premier League, big six, there's kind of a muscle memory to a big game. Whereas really, based on the state of these sides, and I think, not just the sides, even the clubs, the the structure of the club and the, the thought that has gone into everything at these respective clubs. I think there is a really big gap opening up. You look at the, you know, you mentioned Romero coming in for De Gea. I think he is probably the only position in which Man United have uh, backup, which is of the standard you would expect, you know, historically Manchester United to have. Their, their squad, I think, is so thin. Uh, Liverpool, a lot is made of a what if one of their front three 
got injured, but I think they they muddle on. But elsewhere, they have a lot of good cover. United only ever seem to be one or two injuries away from absolute disaster, and that's already with the starting eleven that has its weak spots. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think we have to go back a fair way uh, until a point at which Liverpool were this far behind Manchester United, and yeah, the the reversal in fortunes over the last six, seven years has been astonishing, really. Yeah, especially when you consider the amount of investment that the Man United have made. But uh, that's, a, that's a conversational road that's been well-travelled. Pogba uh, ruled out of this game, Martial out of the picture, and Lindelof and Shaw as well. Rashford looking in fine form, though, away in Sofia. For England, yeah, yeah. He looks great because he looks like he's playing with confidence and with players around him who support what he's trying to do. He's received a heck of a lot of flack admittedly on social media from a section of Manchester United supporters but it's not hard to see him when you're watching for England he just looks like he's happier and that's no surprise whatsoever he, he's kind of lost his midfield creators he's lost the people around him I think Solskjaer is saying that he thinks he can maybe get half an hour out of Martial but as Duncan says it's the first half an hour of the game that's going to be an issue um, if they're two or three behind with with half an hour to go it's a little help bringing on Anthony Martial Looking at the table, as mentioned before, Man United, two points above the drop, but in 12th. There's a number of teams below them. It would be an extraordinary story were they to be in the bottom three, and it could happen this weekend, Duncan. I think it's unlikely given Villa and Brighton are playing, but I think in, if they do lose this game I think in the next week or two, it could happen. They haven't been in the bottom three since 1995. Um, obviously, that was a, a season they then recovered with the kids and won the title. It seems unlikely that's going to happen this time around. It's the first time Liverpool have gone to Old Trafford, top of the Premier League since 1996 as well. So, really? Um, the tables have turned. Do they what? just need one of those Sky Sports pundits to to say something along the lines of oh, you can't win anything with a yeah. ropey old squad of odds yeah. and ends? Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. as that by magic. Yeah. And they may well win the EFL Cup. Yeah. Brilliant. United actually <laughs> won 1998 Premier League goals, which is nice because that's the year that they will wish it was as well. But um, <laughs> Liverpool in 1794, you wonder who's going to get to 2000 first. Nice. All right. Well, that's coming up Sunday afternoon. Tune in early for the good bit. Now, also coming up this weekend, Saturday evening, Manchester City will be travelling to Selhurst Park to take on Crystal Palace, uh, who, and this is fun, would go above Manchester City if they win this game. Could it happen? Yeah, it could happen. Manchester City are not in a good place at the moment, um, and they don't particularly fare well playing Crystal Palace. Um, the One of the... Obviously, we look at Liverpool's rise, etc. But one of the most surprising things of the Premier League season for me is Crystal Palace's home form. They've conceded one goal at home, um, but with the kind of with Gary Cahill coming in and shoring things up alongside Martin Kelly as the other centre back, which is remarkable given where he was at the start of the season. So, yeah, City needs something new because Aguero. Uh, I think it was it was the Argentina coach saying that he thinks Aguero has been carrying an injury all season. Uh, looks slow and sluggish. So they need something new. Raheem Sterling's not played as well for City. Bernardo Silva's been nowhere near his form of last season. Real Mahrez has probably been their best attacking player, and yet he was really bad against Wolves. So, yeah, they need a spark. I mean, if you remember this game two years ago, was the one scene of mild peril in All or Nothing, because uh, obviously Pep brought in the, uh, the research guy to say, guys, 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 the um, Palace are dangerous, and then... They, uh, they nearly lost that game, uh, saved a penalty towards the end. And, of course, they did lose to Palace last season. They lost at home to Palace last season. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is dangerous. The, the one flip side to that right. is um, City have got a weirdly good record in their first game back after the in October international break. So last year they beat Burnley 5-0. The year before they beat Stoke 7-2. In 2015 they beat Bournemouth 5-1. And in 2014 they beat Tottenham 4-1. So I don't know what they do in the international break. But well, they don't spend time with Pep. Is it just a weird coincidence <laughs> or do they, they all enjoy the break, do you think? I think they're just inspired by the autumnal colouring of, of Country. Is it particularly the, the, the autumnal that, international break? It, well, it was the October one. Which, the October, right, yeah. okay. So we'll come back having had as much fizzy drink and other things that Pep doesn't allow mm, as, yeah. as possible. Catch up everywhere. Crystal Palace, you, you mentioned there, uh, exceptional defensive form, but uh, uh, Wilfred Zaha looking pretty sizzling as well for Ivory Coast. How much is uh, he going to be a problem for a City backline that's been ravaged of late? Yeah, he is. I mean, I think the reason he's been, his all-round game, his kind of 
output has been better this season is that it's not all on him. Jordan Ayew has stepped up and actually is posing a threat where, sadly, Christian Benteke hasn't for too long. So, yeah, I think it's that latent effect that Zaha provides in that he demands to put two players on him, which has created a bit of space for Ayew, and they are working pretty well. Mm, very nice. OK, well, that's going to be quite a match then, Saturday evening. Up next, let's talk about Spurs-Watford. They fought the longest war in American history. In 1965, Vietnam seemed like just another foreign war. But it wasn't. It was different in many ways, and so were those who did the fighting. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. That's right, listener. 19 by Paul Hardcastle because <sighs> thanks for Ben it was the last time 11th of May 1985 when that was number one it was the last time Watford won at Spurs in the league Duncan mm. you just pointed out that record's no longer statistically true well, it's bigging up the longest war in American history, but I think the war on terror has now overtaken it. All right. I mean, it depends how you define your asymmetrical you know, I mean, yeah. enterprises. Well, yeah. You know, I'm just going with my pals at the. Uh, no, I'm not saying Up to war. <laughs> Up to war, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Anyway, uh, but in football terms, the key fact here is that Watford don't go to Spurs and win. Not since far away in 1985 and not just Spurs either Watford have lost 16 consecutive Premier League away games against big six opponents in which they've scored nine goals and conceded 53 ouch well just to link it to 19 Spurs ah. are now on 17 uh, defeats in all competitions this year right um, the so last... if they lose this and another it would be well 19. yeah but the last time they had more was 2008 when they lost no 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 19 that's brilliantly done thanks Duncan <laughs> Um, anyway, so Saturday afternoon, hey, um, Kiki Sanchez-Flores came back to steady the ship. Fact, no one's conceded more goals since he took over again. Yeah, I mean, that's aided by shelling just the eight at Manchester City. But yes, um, they need a, a pretty quick turn of fortune and they haven't got one in easier games than this. Spurs are in some sort of existential crisis, but... Uh, they are a better team than Watford. And I saw them beat Palace 4-0 in a game that looked to have changed the mood and didn't prove that. They'll be now after to do exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, Kiki's had a fortnight with his squad and they did get a clean sheet last time out. Spurs, do you see them returning from the international break somehow rediscovering their, their, their previous form, Joe? Well, that's what Mauricio Pochettino said he hoped for. He, he went off to Qatar, I think, to give a talk presumably when most of his players are on international duty but certainly it feels like the kind of moment at which he needs to be pressing a reset button I mean they were really bad against Brighton I think the the Hugo Lloris injury slash Prattful almost kind of covered up some of the more structural weaknesses I just thought they looked bereft of ideas Eric Dyer came in for his first start and Pochettino when Spurs were slash are at their best, depending if you if you think this era is coming to an end, I, I think he had a very clear view of what his first choice starting eleven is. I don't think that's that's the case anymore. I think he's got a few moving parts there, too many players not performing on a consistent enough basis. I mean, Deli Ali would be the one that always springs to mind, but other players as well aren't really cutting it like Lucas. I think. Son is still working his way into the season. And yeah, I, I would be concerned. This looks like a very friendly fixture to welcome them back. And I suppose the hope will be that a little bit of distance has, has brought the morale back on side. Although, I mean, they, they sound like rather more deep-lying or deep-rooted issues than, than an international break would, would resolve. One thing Pochettino has talked about is changing the defence, building on different parts. So he's talking about maybe we might see Juan Foyt at right back, we might see Davinson Sanchez at cent- central defence. Um, whether that means Toby Alderweire is alongside him and Jan Vertonghen may plays left back, I don't know. But some th- he clearly thinks a hard reset is needed and a, a kind of turnover his players is needed to bring back that pressing football that he desperately needs in midfield. Right. As for Watford, Duncan, I was intrigued to read this week that they have the biggest negative difference between goals and expected goals in the division, which means what? That they 
Well, they're, but, very, they're very much suffering with the Watford gap at the moment. Right. Um, thanks, Daniel. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, they've basically scored four goals, but right. on XG, you'd have expected them to score around 11. So that's, you know, they're, they're, it's not like Watford aren't creating good chances. Right. And most Watford fans will can think of many examples this season of them wasting really good opportunities. So, And they're playing a Spurs team, as Jack was saying, who, whose defence is in, in disarray. So... Um, there, I think there's a good chance of How a Watford surprise. How many goals do you expect them to go uh, to score this weekend? I think they can win this match. So, really? Yeah, I they, could see them scoring a couple. They, 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 I think I said it on here before, but they're they're basically scoring one in every thirty shots they're taking this season, which is to no and to nobody's surprise, not sustainable over the course of a season. Wow, that would be quite quite a surprise result, or perhaps not a surprise. Pochettino has this, and then Red Star Belgrade midweek, and then. A trip to Anfield, oi, oi, oi. So if this doesn't go right, the potential for team in crisis klaxons is pretty huge. What else is there this weekend, listener? There's also, same time actually, Saturday afternoon, Chelsea taking on Newcastle. Newcastle have a horrible record at Stamford Bridge. Their last six visits, they've conceded 17 goals. However, the time before those last six visits, this happened. Cisse, oh, that is sensational! Papi Cisse with another blinding strike. What a goal that was! It's the most sensible soccer goal I've ever seen in in actual football because he hits it. He's sort of facing the stand with the goal to his right. But he put so much swerve on it. Um, and I saw an interview with him this week. Actually, he said that. It's all he's remembered for, really, and everyone always asks him about that goal, but he's more proud of the, the first goal in that game, which was also very good. Oh, what was the first goal like? I can't remember. But <laughs> <laughs> but Who knows? He, I mean, let's get him on the line, because he, he clearly remembers. <laughs> okay, all right. What a way for Newcastle to conquer what was their only victory uh, away to Chelsea in 25 visits. Now, Newcastle this time are arriving fresh from that victory over Manchester United with those Longstaff brothers doing... Uh, marvels. They've also, of course, travelled to Spurs and done them. And here's a stat. They've kept three times as many clean sheets this season as Spurs have done. 3-1, mm. mm. I'm guessing that is. That is 3-1. <laughs> yeah. But still, I mean, a Newcastle team that, by and large, hasn't particularly been heralded no. has been defensively pretty sound. Yeah, they're, they're very good at defending against attacks that look a little bit one-dimensional and end up, as Manchester United and Tottenham did, kind of just crossing the ball into the box from deep because they're struggling to break them down. I suspect Chelsea, with their uh, infinitely more movement and more moving parts, will be a lot harder for them to stop. Although, I believe that N'Golo Kante uh, went out of uh, right. the, the most recent France game, the, the Turkey match, Monday night, with a, uh, an injury in the warm-up. I think Kovacic is injured as well. Right. Yes, he came off against Wales, yeah. So potentially that's an issue because when Kante's not there, mm. it does seem to Although impact. Although Barkley looked very good for England, it should be said, in, in Bulgaria. So, right. I mean, him alongside Jorginho uh, is not the end of the world in terms of backup. Mm. Fair, fair. All right, well, that's Chelsea-Newcastle. Arsenal, Monday night, will be the second group of young lads to head to <laughs> Sheffield in search of glory <laughs> this weekend. Yes. Will they fare as well as... As Daniel's group. This to me has uh, absolute Arsenal not turning up for a Monday night fixture where the what? opposition really fancies it all over it. So Sheffield United taking on Arsenal. Arsenal currently unbeaten in eight games in all competitions, but they haven't won in three on the road. But strangely, Sheffield United have lost their last three mm. at Bramall Lane. Yeah, although one of them was to Liverpool, which is, you know, no disaster. To go all Duncan Alexander on you, the last time Sheffield United lost any game by more than a single goal was August 2018. Wow. That's the second game of their championship season. They haven't lost a game by more than a goal in over in, a year. In any competition, yeah. Um, that was to Tony Pulis's Middlesbrough. You really love Sheffield, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> so why is it you think, I mean, Sheffield United, fabulous uh, success story, but why is it you think that Arsenal are not going to turn up for this? Uh, because it feels like the sort of game when they've managed to get themselves to third in the table and even the most optimistic Arsenal fan will say, yeah, you haven't watched us play, you think that's a good thing. Uh, they've kind of been on the edge of perma crisis for about the last year and I just I just think this is one of those games that they turn up and and 
well, look don't. as if they don't. Yeah, and look as if they don't fancy it. Yeah, they've kept two clean sheets in their last twenty-three Premier League away games. Arsenal. Yeah. Um, one of those was one nil at Watford when they should have letting goals and Watford down to 10 men for most of the match and then the win at Newcastle at the start of the season. Um, if you remember, the last time this fix was played in the Premier League, 2006, was sort of the start of the Arsenal banter era, I would say, because um, Phil Jagielka had to go and goal for Sheffield United and, and Arsenal couldn't find a way past him. He made a couple of good saves. So, um, you know, at that time, Arsenal were the, the, I mean, although Chelsea were on the rise, Arsenal was still one of the biggest teams in Europe. So, um, yeah, as Daniel said, this does feel like a, a difficult Monday in Sheffield. I funny you should mention that because uh, Michael Brett writing in saying, uh, what are the pod's favourite moments from this, uh, these duels between Sheffield United and Arsenal of yesteryear? Uh, uh, Michael suggests a toss-up between Seaman rewinding the clock with that save and Carnu's immoral goal. That was amazing, yeah. D- tell us about Carnu's immoral goal. So it was in uh, the FA Cup in 1999, uh, and Sheffield United's Lee Morris was fouled, but the free kick wasn't given against Gilles Grimondi. Yeah, so Sheffield United kicked the ball out of play for Morris to get some treatment. They were supposed to give the ball back by the spirit of the law. Uh, Ray Parler takes a throw in to give it back, and Nwanku Carnu kind of latches onto it. Steams past Sheffield United players who have stood still, crosses it for Mark Overmars, who taps the ball home, and Steve Bruce and Sheffield United go mad. And rightly so, because Arsene Wenger, to his credit, offered to replay the game. But the re- one of the reasons he did that is the explanation given was that, oh, Carney doesn't really know what he's doing. But that isn't just in England that that spirit was played. And also, Mark Overmars really did know what he yeah, was Overmars doing. Yeah, Overmars always gets a free pass. Yeah, it's always I mean, like what Carney did. But Overmars could have not scored the goal but the game was replayed <laughs> yeah it was uh, which is extraordinary yeah it, it is extraordinary uh, and the, the same scoreline was 2-1 to right. Arsenal as it was then wouldn't it have been similar wouldn't, shouldn't they just have done a Bielsa and allowed Sheffield United to wander up the other end and yeah but I, I think that's a relatively new concept that is it that allowing through to it's score not, it's not kind of rocket science no it isn't but but it didn't happen and therefore I mean Wenger was was pretty apologetic after the game and said it was unacceptable so let's just let's re- and it was him it was him suggesting it was the only reason it was replayed the FA oh, really? wouldn't have been able yeah. to interfere and say it must be replayed because it was only a spirit not a law so it was only Wenger saying it that labelled it to happen right yeah it's it's kind of the under underappreciated thing like that because if you think Di Canio got so much credit for catching the ball when he wasn't going to score that goal it was on the edge of the area um, so this is the true gesture from uh, from Wenger you know it was very nice thing to do. Right. What was Seaman rewinding the clock with that save? That was also in the FA Cup in the semi-final uh, at Old Trafford, and it kind of it was in Seaman's ponytail, couldn't cope with Cross's era. Um, but I think Cross probably from a corner comes in, um, and he makes a very kind of scooped. Basically, the ball was behind him, and he managed to scoop it out. Oh, has to be Salido. Yeah, Mr. Karen Shot. Brady. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Seaman was no apprentice that day, was he? Right. <laughs> wow. All right, Jack. Uh, you excited about Leicester Burnley? Uh, yeah, medium excited. I All right. <laughs> Duncan's got, uh, I believe, Duncan's got remarkable stats. That's what I'm hearing about this fixture. It's Brendan. Brendan Rodgers against Sean Dyche, so kind of yin and yang. Is that fair? Well, in, they're in friends, aren't they? They're quite close friends. Are they close friends? Mm. Oh, that's nice. So I imagine a, a particularly, you know, aggressive hug, pretty much. Yeah. I look forward to that. What, uh, what, what's the... Ba- what, did they do a co- coaching course together or something like that? Uh, they were at Watford together, I think. Were they? Yeah. So just memories of Hertfordshire, I imagine. Right. Um, a lot of people say you, you you never make friends in the game. You never you don't have any true friends. Together. So I'm always heartened when I hear of you know, people actually connecting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, term- right. Do go on. Yeah, in terms of content in this game, um, actually inspired by certainly Daniel's story asking me something last year. But basically, this the, hopefully they'll they'll do a big thing about this before the match because um, this match um, brings up lovely memories of Leicester being the last team to play eight games in a row against teams beginning with the letter B, um, one of whom was Burnley in that run. So back in 1936, they had eight games in a row against Barnsley, Burnley, Bradford City, Blackpool, Bradford Park Avenue, Blackburn another one against Bradford Park Avenue and then Bury. Wow. Um, a lot of those clubs are no longer in existence sadly but uh, Burnley very much are and I think it would be nice a nice gesture if they if they did something pretty much to honour that. Wow that's remarkable that's remarkable. Uh, how many B teams are there in the Premier League these days? Just Burnley? 19 aren't they? Oh right so you mean um, <laughs> uh, 
We've got Burnley, Bournemouth, Brighton. Bournemouth. Yeah. Yeah. Technically AFC, Bournemouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, okay. I hate, um, I hate that when they're listed al- alphabetically. That ne- never got brought up until Bournemouth got to the Premier League. A, m- a mysterious coincidence. I hate that. You, none of the other teams are listed as with FC on the end. Jack, um, Leicester smarting from their late defeat at Anfield. Bouncing back with this one against Burnley? I would expect so, yeah. I think they didn't give too bad an account of themselves against Liverpool. And I think, yeah, in recent games I've seen them, I watched the the Newcastle game and the mm. Tottenham game. I thought they were really impressive. I Brendan Rodgers has been playing good football. They've been very good at home as well. I think they've only lost once since he took charge. And... Burnley obviously will give it some, as is their want, but I think Leicester have the quality to to do this. Nice. Okay. Um, by the way, if you like Duncan's stats, then why not to roll up in Dublin or Belfast or indeed Liverpool when we take the Totally Football Show on the road? Listener, the dates are the 8th of November in Dublin, the 9th of November in Belfast, and then the 25th, I believe, in Liverpool, which is a Monday night at the Epstein Theatre, when Duncan will be joined by me and Jules and Raphael Honigstein. Jules is also with us uh, as we trail across Ireland, fighting our way through border checks and whatever else the near future brings us. And Michael Cox will be along. So that's going to be quite an extraordinary road trip. Mm, I think. Documentary makers' bids <laughs> are being accepted. Get your tickets now, by the way, for those at thetotallyfootballshow.com slash events. Uh, while we're plugging things Totally Football League show this week is a special one they'll be talking about Reading's sporting director who's finally completed his extensive search for a new manager who did he choose? yeah he chose himself wow that's fair isn't it? there's a wonderful quote from him in which he says I deny that I had any role in this I'm the sporting director and I had no part in the sacking of Jose Gomez which makes you think what exactly have you been doing at that club for the last six months magnificent Uh, also available for your listening pleasure a couple more Golazzo episodes Uh, these we recorded these on Wednesday Uh, Pippo Inzaghi and Udinese and how Zico came to be playing for a town with about 85,000 inhabitants in the north east of Italy. All sorts of exciting things in there. Right, after this, more of that Premier League. Four other games, listener, coming up this weekend that you might be interested in. Uh, Wolves taking on Saints, Villa up against Brighton, Everton, West Ham and Bournemouth taking on Norwich. We should start with AFC Bournemouth against Norwich, of course. Ajax. Because, you know, alphabetically. <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a nonsense. <laughs> all right, then. Uh, just to mention two goals from Temu Puki uh, for Finland on Tuesday. But Norwich, it's all looking a bit sad there, isn't it? Well, these it's if I can <coughs> delve into the, the realm of XG for a minute, which, yeah. Both these teams have got exactly the same XG considered this season, the two worst figures in the league, oh. just over 15. Um Bournemouth have kind of got away with it in classic Bournemouth style in in exactly in 10th place, which is where they usually are. Um, And Norwich really haven't. Um, So, A, I think this game will have quite a lot of goals in it. Mm -hmm. And B, I think Norwich's struggles are perhaps... You know, overstated a little bit. Reports of their death have been exaggerated. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Uh, Wolves-Saints, though, Jack, what do you think about that? I think this will confirm the respective contrasting trajectories here. I think Wolves to me at least, seem to have stabilised. Obviously, a Europa League campaign can take it out of the team, and I think they were struggling, not not necessarily fitness-wise, but certainly in terms of uh, momentum and just uh, rotation, I think. Teams often find that when they qualify for Europe, the, the Im- impulses to, to change your side... And I think that broke up what was what was really good about Wolves last year, which was the, the kind of the set passing combinations, the little the little triangles they form all over the pitch. But there have been really good signs last couple of games. That right, that's so a win a against bit. Man City and, 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 and Watford in the Premier League. Man, Man City, really impressive. And also that win away in Turkey uh, against Besiktas. So has Nuno just stopped rotating the side then, or what's happened? No, I think I think they've settled a bit at the back. Um he played. I think in both the Watford and the City game, he played Roman Sice in the back, but Sice went off injured against City. So they've got the back three that they were playing with uh, for much of last season, which is Bolly, Cody and Ryan Bennett. I think that's a, a good combination. I don't really like Sice there that much. And 
Jesus Vallejo has been absolutely abysmal in the couple of times I've seen him. So the solidity of that back three, I think, is a big thing for them. And then maybe the use of Adama Traore as a forward, mm. especially, I think, if that makes makes space for Matt Doherty, because Doherty was one of my favourite players last season. I thought he was sensational. And not just in his goals and his attacking raids, but just the intelligence with which he linked up on that right flank with... Uh, especially Jimenez would go over and they'd often swap a pass and Doherty would get in behind. So I think that could point a way forward if, if Traore is used more often as a, a striker, especially against uh, teams that attack as a counter-attacking force. Right, and you mentioned the opposite trajectory of Saints currently heading a little bit in the opposite direction under Ruff. Haas and Huttel. Uh, Villa and Brighton both ended poor runs of results last time out. Villa banging in five against Norwich and then Brighton doing Spurs 3-0 with that Aaron Connolly. Villa had a good international break as well. McGinn with his hat-trick against San Marino. Tyron Mings with an impressive debut for England. Villa-Brighton? Yeah, I think it'll be a test for Villa, this, because Brighton, as we saw against Spurs, um, have really changed the way they play. Um, you know, Matt Ryan's probably the most progressive goalkeeper in the league so far mm. this season. Their average possession's gone up from about 40% last year to over 50% this season. Their pass completion's gone up from about 72 into the 80s. So, you know, it really is a fundamental change of approach. Um, and that Tottenham win will, will give them a lot of confidence. So, um, yeah, this will be a big test for Villa. What I love about Brighton is that alongside that more progressive style on occasion Graham Potter has just gone full Burnley and played four centre halves across mm. the back four so I think that's a nice uh, idiosyncrasy of that that passing football and just four yeah, Dan, lummoxes at the back Dan, Dan Byrne as a full back is an unsettling <laughs> yeah. but we are heading towards Halloween so yeah. <laughs> Fair. Everton are taking on West Ham meanwhile in the early game on Saturday the Toffees, as we mentioned before, four points off the bottom, coming up four defeats in a row. They haven't had a clean sheet in six. Can Marco Silva get the reaction from his side he so desperately needs? He needs to, that's for sure. Yeah. Because West Ham, these games always feel more important for managers because Everton and West Ham, are, West Ham are basically the barometer for Everton, I think. If they finish above them this season, they've probably done pretty well. If they finish below them, they should be unhappy. Mm. So this doesn't look good on Marcus Silva. He fails to beat this team. And there is a slight sense, although they have been very unfortunate in games, you know, the Sheffield night one jumps out in that they, they, they dominated and lost 2-0. But there is a slight sense that he's kind of a little bit running out of ideas, particularly his body language on the touchline. Uh, and yeah, he needs a good news story. And his players, or plenty of his players, have had busy international breaks. So right. It'll all, be although Seamus Coleman will be... Oh, no, he won't. I was going to say Seamus Coleman will be fresh because he got red-carded for Ireland, but he's red-carded here as well. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, and I mean, the only... You know, Michael Keane did not have a good break. Right. Um, Sigurdsson played twice for Iceland. Richarlison, I guess, played for... Went to Singapore. Yeah. Did he? So it'll be interesting to see how they... Because the, the, the big thing with Everton is they look like a series of component parts at the moment, which, given that he's over a year into his reign, is, is not great. Well, the set-piece issue as well. They, yes. They keep conceding from set-pieces. Um, and you'd imagine that Haller would would have a field day in that scenario. Right. Um, there was quite a good piece by David Alexander-Hughes. I saw he'd gone back not only picking out goals Everton have conceded from set pieces this season, but also seeing Everton do it to Marco Silva's Watford. So it's clearly like a, a weakness um, in, in Silva's approach. Do you know what? I've got the numbers for you here. Since Marco Silva came to England in January 2017, his teams, Hull, Watford and now Everton, have conceded 45 goals from set pieces. Is that a lot? That's that a is a lot. huge, huge number, yeah. As you say, it's a problem that is being repeated, which suggests that he hasn't really got an answer for it. Mm. Football managers are too clever now. They will spot mistakes like that and they will, you know, they will identify and expose them. Sebastian Allaire to punish Michael Keane and that Everton bat line, you think, this weekend, Duncan? Uh, it feels so, yeah. Mm, all right. Wow. Well, there's certainly no shortage of storylines as the Premier League returns for what they're terming match day nine. I see no reason to disagree with them. You'll be intrigued to know that there's an equally rich selection of talking points across the continent as well. Uh, this weekend, we'll, we'll talk about some of the real stories there in a second or two. First, though, if you were hungry for odds on some of those Premier League matches, hoo-hoo, producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Listeners, it's your lucky day. It's Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power. And Lee, let's start with Liverpool against Man United at Old Trafford. Uh, give us some markets on this one, please. 
Yeah, I don't think what I'm about to say will surprise you, Ben, but it is kind of unusual. Liverpool are odds-on to win at Old Trafford, despite a fairly patchy history there in recent years. And if they do beat United, we're offering money back as a free bet on all markets. Uh, that applies to all markets, of course. Pre-match singles only. Max free bet of £10. T and C's apply. United, for what it's worth, are 7-2 to win a game of football at home. That is unusual. As we were saying, both Spurs and Watford have had the chance to take stock over this international break. So what's going to happen in this one? Yeah, Tottenham fans may not be confident at the minute, but our traders are. Tottenham are 4-11 to win this, and perhaps more tellingly, Watford are 6-1 to win at the new Tottenham Stadium. The draw here is 7-2, but everything points to a Tottenham win, except perhaps the Tottenham squad. And finally, is there any chance that Newcastle can cause a shock at Chelsea? (laughs) I mean, I shouldn't laugh really, because Newcastle have pulled out some good results against the bigger teams this season. If you still count Man United as a bigger team, of course. But we're very hot on Chelsea at the minute. We're predicting them to finish third and they're 1-4 to four, odds on heavily to win this one. Newcastle are 9-1, to one, which is a lengthy price, but it would have been a lot longer prior to that Man United win. The draw 9-2. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. A busy weekend in Europe. Germany, you've got surprise leaders Borussia Mönchengladbach taking on Borussia Dortmund. So a big, big, big uh, weekend in the city of Borussia. (laughs) Yes, that's the one for me. That's the game I've picked out. Uh, Okay. Dortmund scoring loads of goals, but also conceding loads of goals. Mats Hummel's slightly struggling. And yeah, this Borussia Mönchengladbach forward line, which feels quite mercurial with... Churam and Alessane Play and Patrick Herman and yeah I think they've scored I think, I think the four forwards have had a hand in every single goal they've scored this season so mm. yeah they are really good to watch so that'll mm. be good by the way if you've been alarmed by uh, the Turkish invasion of, of northern Syria and indeed the willingness of Turkish players to salute their military then you might have uh, been intrigued equally by the uh, decision of St Pauli in the Bundesliga Sfai to release their Turkish midfielder, Cenk Sahin, after he posted an Instagram saying, we're on the side of our heroic military, our prayers are with you. St Pauli responded that we reject acts of war is not open to doubt or discussion. Uh, Their acts and the expression of solidarity with them run counter to the values of the club. Yeah, it's fair to say that Mr. Shaheen has not done an awful lot of preliminary research about St. Pauli and their values because that's an extraordinary thing for him to post as a, as no. a player for that club. In the words of Donald Trump, don't be a tough guy, don't be a fool. Yeah, <laughs> words to live by. In Spain, Atletico Madrid take on Valencia. Barcelona will be facing a six-hour bus journey, apparently, to get to their fixture this weekend against Ibar because they're going to have a general strike. The airport's closed uh, in support of the separatist Catalan leaders who were jailed uh, for lengthy times, nine and 13 years for sedition. Um, this is a big story right now, not just because of that, not just because, of course, the much broader issues beyond the football, but also because the Liga are taking a look at the Clásico, which is coming up on the 26th, and would see Real Madrid arriving in, in town. And you couldn't have a more politically sensitive fixture right now than Real Madrid coming to town. Yeah, this was the game, the Ibar game was the game I was going to pick out, actually, because um, on a slightly more prosaic note, the um, Barcelona have massively overperformed this season. They, um, their XG is about 10.8, and they've scored 20 goals. So three goals, bigger gap than any other team in the top five leagues in Europe. So given that, and given the difficult journey they're going to have, mm. I, I would say this is ripe for a surprise. Really? I mean, it, it's really echoes of... 2010 and the uh, and Barcelona's coach journey across to uh, ill-fated coach journey across to San Siro for that yeah. Champions League uh, semi-final. La Liga's great at the moment, isn't it? Because they're all rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're all in various states of disarray. Uh, Barcelona, I think, covering up more than most. But Madrid, Real Madrid, is somehow top despite being uh, really, to most people's minds, uh, in need of renovation. Atletico Madrid was supposed to have renovated, yet they can't seem to score. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show that a good 
title race doesn't necessarily need to have a great deal of quality. Absolutely not. In Ligue 1, Jack, uh, I see PSG are taking on Nice, who are way down in eighth right now in Ligue 1. But uh, PSG won't have Neymar again because he's gone and got injured once yeah, more. He he played his 100th game for Brazil against Senegal and then limped off very early on in the, the following game against Nigeria. I mean, even if he hadn't got injured, there would have been a bit of fatigue there because like Richarlison, we mentioned, he had also been to, to Singapore for these games uh, on what was, by all accounts, a pretty ropey pitch. A lot of moaning in the Brazilian media about how uh, pointless this was. Hard to disagree with that, really. And it looks like he's going to be up for up to four weeks. Oh, really? Hamstring issue, yeah. Right, missing, obviously, Champions League action on Tuesday when PSG will be taking on Club Bruges. Would, has he gone back to Rio to for his R&R? <laughs> I, I don't know, but, I mean, that's fairly likely, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably is. All right. Uh, in City A, in case you were wondering this weekend, lots of excitement, new managers galore, Claudio Ranieri debuting on the Sampdoria bench. It's a lovely combination, that, isn't it? Nice old Sampdoria. It's one of those that you can't believe it's not happened yeah. before. Really. Well, also because he's managed literally everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But that was one little pocket that he hadn't uh, yet ticked. Uh, and, of course, he's uh, debuting with Sampdoria bottom of the table and conceding goals galore. He's debuting against uh, his former employers on, on a couple of occasions, Roma, his former club as a player as well. And the club that he's you know essentially always been a fan of too, Roma, who have had a, a mixed start. I think it's fair to say, under Paolo Fonseca, but are currently uh, just on the edge of the, the, the top four and uh, Sampdoria very much bottom of the pile. They're not the only team welcoming in a new manager, Milan, who are currently down in 13th and a kind of Manchester United-esque slump. Uh, will be having Stefano Fiori taking over there. They're at home to Lecce. Producer Ben sends this note. He doesn't look anything like you, James. Uh, Stefano Pioli is another of those people that uh, I get so many. Is he just a bald man? Yeah, if there's a bald man <laughs> with a, a beard, bald bloke. anywhere in yeah. sport, the, 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 my my timeline's filled up with oh, nice to see a new job. <laughs> Daniel's enjoying <laughs> it. Just giggling, <laughs> right? Um, do you get any look-alike? Uh, do you get people tweeting abuse of that nature mm. to you, Duncan? Not really. I used to get a bit of Almunia. I bet you did. Oh, mm. I bet you did, yeah. But it's more stats nerd with you, isn't it, more than lookalikes? So. Yeah, it's, it's stuff like, oh, have you ever gone to a party? It's like, yeah, I've gone to many parties, actually, thanks. Um, so, go away. People are so cruel. Yeah, they are cruel, aren't they? If you love numbers so much, why don't you marry them? Yeah. That sort yeah. of well, that is wit. true. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How much simpler it would be, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What number would you marry? Probably go eight. Mm, no. <laughs> Just for really? curvaceous. Yeah. The, yeah. Curvaceous, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, Daniel does look exactly like a young Robert De Niro. That's true. It's one particular oh, photo, actually, isn't it? No, but it's right not. now... they just use you in the... In right the now, <laughs> you're wearing your taxi driver yeah, jacket yeah, as well. Yeah, he's got a kind of camo, he's, he's a weathered non-veteran. He's one non -veteran. haircut away from... Yeah, yeah, if you could well, just... Uh, Sheffield Mohican Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Damn, Damn, if there are any barbers in Sheffield listening... Right, nice one. Good. Well, that's your weekend, of course, coming up. Thank you. And then you'll be back with us on Monday before heading back again to Sheffield. In a and then back to London Tuesday and then Genk on Wednesday. It's going right. to be a funny old week. Wow. Uh, and you've got a pretty exciting weekend coming up as well, Jack, because you're heading to Scared to Dance, Pat Nevin's famed uh, DJ night thing. And who are you going to see spinning this? Uh, guys, come in theatre. Good ah, lord! Yes. Anything you want to add to that, or should we just let that sit for a second? I think we can we can let that sit. But I, what um, kind I, of music does Gaiska drop? Well, according to the the promotion for it, oh yeah, uh, the likes of the Velvet Underground, oh, yeah. uh, the Breeders, yeah. uh, Bell and Sebastian. So it's kind of a, wow. a mix of. It's going to be a sweaty night for him. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> right. um, but I, I'm I'm intrigued to see how many of the the revelers. Yeah actually know that it's a, a former international football. Well, I would I would imagine something like that. I mean, I haven't seen the flyer, but I imagine his name is quite prominent and he would be a big draw that he's... I mean, I don't want to say they brought him in for his football pass more than his disc-spinning abilities, but... It, you know, I mean, they probably have. Yeah. I don't right. know. Why. That's let's, fascinating. Let's well, see how if that. you can, you know, make a note of the set list and that, and... Uh, <laughs> it should be quite the night for you, Jack. I mean, I, <laughs> we should point out Jack's 
look of horror that he's got to stay up till what at least midnight. Well, it starts at eleven p.m. And right. I, given that I've been on baby duty for the last nine oh, yeah. months, I haven't been awake. Well, actually, I have been awake at eleven p.m., but only having woken up from an early night. Right. Okay, we'll have a nap before you go. Yeah, so I'm going to be... I'll, I'll be the most boring person at this hmm. thing by, by some distance. Never mind that. Bell and Sebastian Safe. will be keeping you wide awake. Uh, <laughs> I say that, by the way, kind of just as a massive Bell and Sebastian fan. So, uh, great. Uh, super. Everybody, whatever you're doing uh, this weekend... Oh, by the way, if they want to come along, if they want to squeeze into uh, Scared to Dance, where is that taking place, Jack? Uh, at the Shacklewell Arms in Hackney. Right. Uh, if you do want to come along... <laughs> find me because i'm still trying to convince one of my friends to come oh okay yeah nice excellent uh all right that's happening then there whatever you get up to listener do enjoy it and join us again on monday with daniel michael cox and matt davis adams for now from us all goodbye you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddyneesmedia.com Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. <laughs>